0: everyone. Welcome to Geotrek. Today we have a very special episode with a special guest with us, Ned Rosell. Ned is a science writer in Alaska who has twice walked the 800 miles of the Trans Alaska Pipeline over two different summers. He has also written more than a thousand stories about Alaska science and nature. Ned, thank you so much for being on Geotrek. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Good morning, Hal.
0: Uh, great to have you here, Ned. Um, you know, we've also been personal friends for quite some time. I think we met in Alaska in 2005. Do you remember we took that trip out to the Bering Strait area, putting up uh, weather stations out there in quite a remote area?
1: Yes, a lot of good memories from that trip, including buying the most expensive wiffle ball set in North America in the gnome ac store
0: that's right so ned and i are both baseball fans and we like adventure travel so there we were in western alaska and that's right we bought that wiffle ball set so we could play a wiffle ball in the remote villages
1: yeah it's a good thing we had that along
0: Ned, uh, another memory I have from that trip was being out there in the Bering Strait School District. We were assembling weather stations, and I think really they got streaming internet just um, right before that. I remember we coordinated our weather station assembly time, which we had to do indoors, with uh, baseball playoffs. Do you remember we were streaming, I think, a Yankees-Red Sox game from Western Alaska remote villages?
1: Yeah, we were living right out there, little MLB.com in the early days.
0: Yeah, it was great. Um, so we were out there and doing, uh, started doing some science and adventure projects. I had lived in Alaska about three years, but Ned, you've been out there a lot longer than that. So Ned, you grew up in upstate New York. Could you walk us through how you got from upstate New York to Alaska?
1: From upstate New York, I sort of wanted to get out of there like many teenagers do at a certain age. And I saw An inexpensive way to do it, rather than me going to college because I wasn't ready to, was to go in the Air Force. So I did, and my second duty station was up in Alaska, and I liked it here. I liked that I met some dudes downtown in Fairbanks, 30 miles from the base, who kind of smelled like wood smoke and said, oh, we live in cabins. They're only heated by wood and we have outhouses and we don't have pipes. We just use water jugs and live real simple. And I said, hey, I could do that. Live on the cheap like that. It's sort of a a different climate because it has real extremes. Like right now we're in early June and it just doesn't get dark. And six months from now, it's not gonna get very light. It'll be fairly cold probably. You know, we could have lows every winter, of 40 below zero Fahrenheit. Yeah, and we could have 80 above
0: uh, next
1: week or something.
0: I've heard it said that when most people think of dark and light, they think of that as a daily thing, but Alaskans think of that more as a seasonal thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, because we just don't have darkness now. We have to pull our shades down to get really good sleep, at least I do, but... It won't be an issue in midwinter when you're craving a little more light.
0: So, Ned, that first time in Alaska with the Air Force, that was quite a while ago. How long have you been in Alaska now?
1: Well, I got out of the Air Force. I was stationed back in Mississippi after Alaska, but I liked it here, and I made it a goal to get back. So, after about a year of living back in upstate New York, I came back to Alaska go to college here and that was 1986 and i have been here ever since
0: wow so you've really had more than 30 years up there in the last frontier
1: yeah it's it's most of my life because i'm 58 now and uh doing the math that's more than half a lot of time in the boreal forest
0: You know, Ned, a lot of times when we think about earthquakes, we think about California. But from my time in Alaska, the geophysicists up there at the Geophysical Institute uh, really made the point that Alaska has these high-energy earthquakes from one plate subducting under another. And I think they made the point as well that those are the earthquakes that often produce the biggest tsunamis or the massive coastal flooding as well. Any insights into that from your time in Alaska?
1: Yeah, I just felt an earthquake the other night when I was out camping. And I knew it was a fairly big one because it made this little willow next to my tent. It made it quiver. And it felt like, from my experience, it was sort of a good size one that would be pretty far away. And then when I came back to civilization, I looked on my computer, and got to the Alaska Earthquake Center, which is where I work here at the Geophysical Institute. And the seismologists they record excuse me, everything that happens in Alaska. They have uh, instruments all over the state, hundreds of them, to detect subtle and great ground movement. So I was looking, and I found that the earthquake I felt that made that willow move was a magnitude 6.1, and it was a couple hundred miles away. And it did no damage although yeah 6.1 could do a lot of damage if it happened somewhere like downtown san francisco but as i was scrolling through there they listed earthquakes like from magnitude 2.5 up and there were hundreds of them for that day so i really had to look around and uh, it just shows what a what a big place alaska is and we have all these Forces underground that are really reshaping the earth at a slow and fast pace. But two of them that really do it are sort of this giant Pacific plate, which is under the Pacific Ocean, the Gulf of Alaska. And it's sort of, it's grinding, diving below the North American plate, which is sort of like the face of Alaska that you see on the map. So there's this tension between them. They all They wanna get past one another, but they're locked up by friction and occasionally they slip and there's a big earthquake. And the biggest example of that was a 9.2 that happened in 1964. And it damaged a lot of Alaska and it killed dozens of people, mostly from waves that it generated, even in uh, places as far away as uh, Crescent City, California. People died from tsunamis from that earthquake.
0: Now, let's talk a little bit about tsunamis. So, uh, tsunami is the Japanese term for harbor wave. Uh, we know all, look, all along the Pacific, whether you're in Japan, over uh, by Alaska, tsunamis are a big problem. But, uh, you know, getting these ma- massive waves and, and water that can be forced by an earthquake when you've traveled along say the Gulf of Alaska the Alaska Peninsula the Aleutian Islands coming across some of these coastal villages coastal towns have you seen them adapt in any way to prepare for earthquakes and tsunamis is there anything about their construction or location of these villages that would tend to show that they've adapted or you know prepared for these inundations or is that not really so apparent
1: well as far as building after uh the big nineteen sixty four earthquake. There are places like in our biggest city, Anchorage, where people did not rebuild. Like there's one place they call it Earthquake Park now, and it's just it's out by the big airport there. And it's on these water saturated clay soils. And that when it's shaken in a big earthquake, it sort of acts like a liquid, this goopy jello. And not good to have your house on top of that jello or any other big structures. Uh, so they didn't rebuild there after the earthquakes. like all the houses sort of slid down the hill during that big event. Uh, but other ones, yeah, like all of downtown Anchorage is is still on pretty bad soil, so kind of in some places we didn't rebuild on bad soil, and some places just grew um, without a whole lot of regard for that, but uh, people definitely pay attention to it and one thing that changed for those buildings that are on the in downtown Anchorage, their codes change building codes, so a lot of them are a lot more earthquake resistant you know they can sway in a big earthquake and yeah, they have a lot, some buildings are instrumented down there by these seismologists. And yeah, they can tell how much it rocks in a little or big earthquake.
0: So it sounds like in the urban landscape, there are some scientific measures to actually measure and record the seismic activity, but also maybe some adaptations to the, the build environment so that, uh, that the buildings can sway somewhat with these big tremors and big earthquakes.
1: Yeah, and another thing scientists have done here at the place where I work, is they've made these tsunami inundation maps have done it for all these small communities in alaska alaska has a few what you call cities but most of the i guess there's like 200 villages and towns little tiny places you know with from everywhere from a couple dozen people to a few hundred to a few thousand maybe so a lot of these are coastal and pretty vulnerable to a tsunami because they're close to sea level and a big wave could come up on shore and get everything wet or kill people or wreck structures. So yeah, scientists here have uh, just made maps and it's as simple as, yeah, just having like a Google Earth image and then this red line showing, okay, if you get a magnitude seven earthquake and it's within this far, then tsunami is going to come and everything within this red polygon is going to be wet.
0: So it's really like a flood map, but for tsunamis. I know a lot of our listeners are tuning in from the Gulf of Mexico or the Southeast US where they might think of flooding more in terms of heavy rain or storm surge from a hurricane. It sounds like we have similar flood maps in Alaska, but uh, maybe in many areas, the tsunami threat from earthquakes is what's really driving that.
1: Yeah. And in a lot of areas in recent years, I've noticed signs for just street signs, say a little blue and white sign says Tsunami Evacuation Route, like say in uh, Valdez, Alaska, where it just directs you to higher ground.
0: Ned, what, so for people that live in a tsunami zone, or is there a warning system? If so, how would that work?
1: Well, now, since the big tsunamis the last 20 years, like in Indonesia, and the advent of YouTube and people being able to watch videos of what, what it looks like, you know, just as rapidly, not a huge wave crashing on your town, but a, like a really quickly rising tide that just kind of engulfs everything. Uh, people are a lot more conscious of what it might look like
0: now, that's really interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying that the 2004 tsunami in the Indian Ocean, um, as well as the 2011 tsunami in Japan has kind of created this awareness, I just, I suppose, because they were such high magnitude of events. And like you said, now with the advent of YouTube and ways that we can watch these videos online, I guess uh, more people can actually see what the power of these events and what it looks like to be struck.
1: Yeah, you know, we're visual creatures. And just to, to see all that, Destruction is so dramatic, right? Something we don't forget, especially if we live on the coast or are visiting on the coast, right?
0: Ned, several years ago, you visited me where I live in Galveston, Texas. I'm right on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm on a barrier island. In a sense, Galveston and these other cities on barrier islands probably should not be there, right? The, The barrier islands want to move around. They're basically sandbars that are very dynamic. But here we are nonetheless. And then we have examples from Alaska, places like Shishmarev that are basically on a sand spit. Again, uh, very tenuous out there uh, on shifting sand very vulnerable to flooding. Um, In the case of Galveston, after the major hurricane in 1900, the island was intentionally raised, And even still, we have intentional beach nourishment projects every few years to add sediment to the beach and and to to keep um, really the the land area at least uh, staying the same. In Alaska, have you seen cases where there's been efforts to raise islands or to dredge up materials and put them on these barrier islands? Or if not, how have people adapted to The flood threat up there
1: yeah in Alaska I haven't yeah not many examples come to mind of people sort of modifying things like adding earth to make their place higher Uh, but several villages have moved over time like not too far from where I live in Fairbanks there's a village of minto alaska and there's also a village of old minto alaska and old minto was an active place of you know maybe a hundred or less people at the turn of the the last century but then uh, it would flood a lot in the fall just kind of natural uh, rain driven flooding would get the village all wet so the villagers decided to move there, and they did move to a new site on higher ground, which is really pretty, uh, but they're no longer on the same river. They're on a tributary now. So they did that, and there's a more modern example of the village of Newtok, which is out in southwest Alaska, and those folks are in the process of moving now to a site about 20 miles away because the river next to Newtok was eating away at this frozen ground that had been frozen for yeah hundreds or thousands of years and uh, they were just losing a lot of their buildings and shoreline so everyone in that village which probably maybe a hundred or less pretty small place but everyone was of the same mind as of moving is the best thing we can do here and that's uh that's not always the case right because we humans we we get a place and we're very loyal to it and it gets hammered a few times by by rain or hurricanes or whatever and we don't want to leave because it's home but these people they've moved to a new site about 20 miles away and they got help you know uh they got federal funding and state funding uh, disaster fund. But they made the decision, and they weren't afraid to get help. And now they have a new village that sort of sprung up a ways away. So I think that it's sort of traditional, in a sense, that a lot of Alaska Native people have moved over time. I mean, we're all probably uh, pretty migratory people. When we get down to it, so maybe that was their first instinct when uh, their home site gets sort of unlivable is to go somewhere close that's a little little more livable
0: now do you think there are some characteristics in the native alaskan population that makes them maybe makes them a little more adaptable to move you know for example um i remember there being fish camps where much or most of a village would actually relocate for a couple months in the summer when there's a salmon run and then, you know, relocate back to their, their more standard uh, village when the salmon run was done. That type of really moving and collective mindset of uh, mobility. Do you think that maybe that's some of uh, what's behind maybe enabling a village to actually move their entire site?
1: Yeah, that's a great observation, Hal. Um, And I hadn't thought, of the thought process of those folks like that but yeah in their past and in our distant past we were all nomadic right we would follow the food whether it's a salmon run that occurs on this little part of the river for one month and all of a sudden you're rich in all these protein filled bodies right that could keep you alive during the winter if you can preserve them
0: you know yeah mm Ned, there was an important life lesson when I was traveling with you. Remember, we were out there doing science field work. Our, remember, our bush plane broke down in quake. And I went down to the water, and there was a boat. They were going out to, um, I think, go whaling. And they were actually working on a harpoon. And you know, me being the, an adventurer, I asked if I could go with them. And they kind of looked at me, and I said, well, we'd have to be back tomorrow morning by 8 o'clock. Will you be back by then? And they just gave me this really puzzled look. And the guy was very gracious with me, but he said, well, he said, you see that island out there? And he said, well, you know, if we find birds out there, we're going to stay a few days. If not, we're going to push over to another area and go fishing. And I quickly realized I was thinking in my Eastern Pennsylvania factory town mindset of, you know, you, you punch a clock and work from six to three and then you get off. And it, it just hit me. My goodness, these people are really adapting and flowing with, um, they're, they're going to, go out on a hunting and fishing expedition and depending on what they find, it's going to completely change the whole direction of that journey. It, it really got me thinking as our, I think our bush plane was broken down for 24 hours. It got me thinking there's no way these people could tell me if they're going to be back in 24 hours or not. But in my, my mindset of where I grew up, things are very scheduled and I'm not really, you know, going with the flow as much as they do there in Western Alaska. So that was a huge lesson, but I, I you know, and I'm sure you've traveled out there so extensively, I'm sure you've probably seen that a lot and it's probably uh, adapted its way much into your lifestyle as well for you personally
1: yeah not as much as those folks you were trying to go out with but yeah cool observation i i remember that now as you say it but i wouldn't have remembered it if you didn't have that triggered
0: yeah i never got on that harpooning thing but then i thought hey second best we have that wiffle ball set that we bought in gnome and we'll just uh <laughs> (laughs) Play some wiffle ball in the town. Ned, you've explored, and we've talked a lot about coastal areas, but some of your most amazing explorations of Alaska. So twice, you've walked the entire Alaska pipeline from south to north. This is over 800 miles. I mean, could you explain a little bit how that idea even came up? And then, I mean, this is just tremendous. I mean, this took you months to walk the pipeline. Could you explain a little bit about how you came up with the idea and uh, just a little bit about what you learned and how that changed your perspective of the state? Yeah, I had read a book, Walk Across America by Peter Jenkins in my 20s.
1: I thought, man, what a great book and what a great idea. He walked from New York State to New Orleans in that book with his dog. And it's just this idealistic, simple, me and my dog go walk and we'll see who I meet and maybe I can hang out with him for a while and find out what makes these folks tick. And then Continue on, have that freedom of the road always in front of you. And I was looking around, I said, I don't think anybody's done that for Alaska. And how could I do it? I did have a great dog first time I did it and the second time I did it. So I had a friend who worked for a pipeline company. There's this company that's it's like eight different oil companies are joined in to make this one company that sort of maintains this 800-mile pipe that was built across the whole face of Alaska from north to south in the late 70s. My friend who worked for him, he he liked to run, as do I, and he said, you know, it's a great place to run on the gravel road right next to the pipeline, because all along that 800 miles, there's this pile of gravel that dump trucks dumped over that whole line, this one little thin line across Alaska. And then I thought, okay, that's it. That's the path. So I got permission a couple times to walk it. Uh, And it's a great place for a man and his dog because there's no traffic. There are a few maintenance vehicles, but they all go pretty slow. So I walked it first in 1997, and I wrote a book about that called Walking My Dog Jane. And then I did it four years ago in 2017 uh, with my dog Cora and my wife Kristen and daughter Anna came along for a little bit. They did not come along for the whole thing, but I had other friends who also came with me and both were summer long trips. So I was out, out both times for all of May, all of June, all of July. and All of August on one trip and a little bit of August on the most recent one. So, yeah, just neat, slow journeys across Alaska. And, uh, yeah, I really, I know that line pretty well now from from doing it twice. And that was one of my goals was just to be able to stick a pin somewhere on that 800-mile line on my map and uh, just have an image for it, right? I know what it looks like smells like I slept there, right?
0: Then how have those pipeline treks changed your perspective of Alaska? Well, I really know the size of it
1: now because I've traveled really slowly over it, you know? First trip, I'm at average probably six miles a day. Second one, I average more like 10. So that's pretty slow. You're, you're wandering slowly through the swamps and slowly over the mountain ranges and slowly walking the bridges or taking a little boat across the rivers and drinking out of all those rivers and creeks so just sort of getting the, the character of what what alaska is and how different it is from from you know the boreal forest which is really thick and spongy with moss in the middle to the to the mountains which are yeah just hard and
0: rock and cold up top. Ned, did you ever hit the wall on either of these treks where you just felt really alone or isolated or afraid or anything like that? Just wanted to quit like during the trek?
1: Yeah, sometimes
0: during bad weather. Like
1: my last one 2017, I was almost to Fairbanks and it was just really wet. It was a day we had more than an inch of rain continually soaking me, and the mosquitoes were really bad too. So that day was sort of a low point, but next day was sunny and nice. So, yeah, that's one thing I learned too. There's always a reprieve, you know, some days were not great for the human creature because you're cold or wet or there's a lot of bugs or you get a blister or whatever, but then you sleep and there's another day and it's maybe a little bit better or maybe it's a lot better.
0: Ned, so you've had so much varied travel around the state of Alaska and other places in the North. What, when you think back of your different tracks, either the pipeline hikes, or I know you spent a lot of time out in the Aleutians and on ships and all over the place. What's the hardest decision you've ever had to make on a wilderness track? whether to eat my toothpaste
1: or save it for later.
0: So interesting, was that out of hunger? I mean, when you mentioned eating toothpaste.
1: Yeah, I've done these wilderness point-to-point races, and they happen in uh, March or April. The official title is the Alaska Mountain Wilderness Classic Ski Race. And it's like usually about 160 miles point to point with usually not on any trails but sometimes you get lucky and you find some snowmobile trails and you have skis and you have your backpack and it's carrying all your food and hopefully you make it to the finish while you still got some food but a couple times I haven't yeah and one time yeah me and my friend few uh we uh fell a few days short of food so we uh we split what was remaining of a tube of toothpaste when we were still a couple days out from our
0: finished spot so toothpaste is edible and i'm imagining you ate the toothpaste for energy is that right
1: yeah just to uh, have something to uh quell your hunger a little bit for a while and uh keep you moving
0: that's tremendous. Do you ever have issues with hydration on those types of winter treks? I mean, uh, obviously people have camelbacks and water bottles. So what if those freeze? A lot of
1: times, uh, well, every time you bring a way to melt snow. So you got a stove and a pot, hopefully the lightest weight design you can find. Uh, but on that trip, yeah, even our stove sort of stopped working. so We had everything... Uh, kind of break there, a real cool, memorable trip. But we were lucky too in that uh, there were some open rivers. Some rivers don't freeze all winter for whatever reason. They have warm, upflowing water or something from springs. So we could just dip our water bottles. Yeah, on that trip I remember dipping our water bottles and we had tea bags. We'd put the tea bags in the water bottle. That would be something.
0: that's amazing. You know, GeoTrek, we look at extreme weather and disasters. I have to ask you, what's the coldest temperature you've ever experienced in Alaska? Minus 56 at my little waterless cabin
1: in the winter of 1989, it's January,
0: 1989. Wow, 56 below, that is brutal. Yeah, Ned, as we look to the future, what are some of the main things Alaskans are thinking about to make themselves more resilient to extreme weather and disasters.
1: Good question. We we've, we've had a
0: slow motion disaster going on
1: and it affects me cuz my house is sort of sinking slowly because permafrost is thawing and permafrost is ground that's been frozen for thousands of years. It's kind of the the relic of the ice age and even farther back when air temperatures were colder and the cold air penetrated in the ground and all the moisture in there froze. So it seems like solid ground and we build on it. Uh, But there's a lot of ice in that soil. And as temperature warms and it's warming here faster than just about anywhere else, it penetrates deeper and it thaws this solid ice. And sometimes mixed with, yeah, a lot of silt and soil. And so that ice turns to water, it drains away, and you get a lot of times just subtle landscape drop, right? You're losing elevation. And sometimes it's not so subtle because you got a big chunk of clear ice that formed in the days of the mammoth that's down there like 10 feet, this this car-sized chunk. And now it's been warm enough subtly over these last few decades that the warmth's penetrating and all of a sudden that car-sized chunk of ice melts and it's gone and a sinkhole develops and we've seen a lot of those around here too um so a lot of that is affecting our homes and our roads they get really sort of roller coastery because same thing happens beneath them you know you get this solid that was once there, and then it's gone, and the ground slumps, and the road gets really bumpy, and it takes a lot of repair. Now that's really interesting.
0: So it sounds like you're saying thawing permafrost or frozen soil can create a lot of ground instability, and this could even happen under people's homes, right? So what happens if, you know, the the ground suddenly falls under your homes, you have a a sinkhole? Do you know of people that have, like, permafrost slash sinkhole insurance or I mean how does how do people deal with this and adapt to it
1: oh that's a good point yeah it's hard to get insurance for that just like it's probably hard to get flood insurance in a spot that always floods every fall I guess that's something I'm thinking about right now you know how much money do you put into fixing a foundation or do you just move yeah or do you try to sell it as is? It's a question a lot of people have up here right now.
0: Yeah, and Ned, that, that's really so interesting because when we think of Alaska, we think of extreme cold, we might think of extreme snow, but you know, p- melting permafrost might not be something that, that seems so intuitive. And the other thing is that hazard in a sense is created by warm days, right? So uh, sunshine and 75 degrees might not seem like a hazard, but it sounds like in Alaska where you have permanently frozen soil, all of a sudden sunny warm temperatures in the summer can lead to uh, really a slow motion disaster as you described it.
1: And even the, the seasons becoming longer, like summer becoming longer, you don't get the ground freezing until late October when it used to freeze in late September, right? So that sort of preserves that frozen ground it puts it on pause for the winter you know it's not gonna have any chance of thawing for months but now there's sort of a larger window of warmth that could affect these soils and uh, yeah affect a lot of things just make people on the coast have to face more storms without that protective cap of ice that they usually had on the ocean at that time
0: so it sounds, Ned, like you're saying a later onset to winter can have a lot of impacts, both on the coast and, and inland as well. You know, another thing that this brings up is that sometimes a place like Alaska that's so adapted to cold, a bigger hazard can actually be warmth. We saw the reverse in Texas during February of 2021. You know, just getting several days of sub-freezing temperatures had an enormous impact, whereas heat in a place like Texas doesn't really have a big impact like that. So sometimes it's almost the opposite um, of the extreme that causes the big hazard. Uh, I'd imagine you've seen that in Alaska somewhat. I know when I live there, a, a, a rainy day in the winter can be catastrophic, right? Because you have a, a lot of that um, that precipitation freezes on contact on the on the snow-covered roads and things like that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's a great observation. And also, nobody here depends on air conditioning. And when we need it, you know, we get really hot days in the summer, people are scrambling, and you can't find, like, a fan. You can't find a fan at the, at the store because they're sold out, right? Or people don't know how to work the AC on their cars because we just haven't had much use for it in the past you know but now it's it's something we're looking for
0: right so those one or two hot weeks you know really really hot weeks in the summer i guess could have some big impacts where people say wow i don't have air conditioning or or things like that Ned, any other thoughts that come up when you think about preparing for extreme weather disasters things like that in alaska
1: yeah like you said we're pretty dialed in for for cold and everyone has their fortress house that has a lot of insulation and will keep you alive at temperatures that
0: could freeze you solid, you know? Yeah, but we're not so good at the warm end of things. Ned, thank you so much for taking time to come on GeoTrek. We really enjoyed hearing about your adventures and your insights on Alaska. We covered a lot of ground in this episode, talking about climate change, extreme cold, sea ice, even earthquakes and tsunamis. We heard about Earthquake building codes in places like Anchorage and the adaptability of native Alaskans to sometimes as a community change their entire location. One of the big take homes and lessons learned for me though was this concept that we often picture disasters being these really high magnitude catastrophic sudden events like an earthquake, a volcano, or a blizzard, but Ned mentioned Melting permafrost as a slow motion disaster. This is as the climate warms and we see warm, sunny days in Alaska. The permanently frozen soil is thawing and that's making the land shift underneath buildings. That's a disaster that might blindside people. We might not picture sunny, warm weather causing a disaster but in places like alaska indeed it can and that's a common theme as we work with communities in geotrack sometimes the disasters that we learn about blindside us a little bit we learn new things and get new perspectives that we didn't previously have ned we're excited to continue following you and your adventures and science writing and um, appreciate you coming on geotrack